This episode of Pastor Well was recorded in the spring of 2020 during the coronavirus crisis. We were using Zoom to capture these episodes, so you may notice a difference in the audio quality. Still, we're grateful for the opportunity we've been provided to interview guests that would have otherwise been really difficult to get in the studio. We hope you'll enjoy it, and thanks for listening to Pastor Well. Conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York. I'm the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buckron Baptist Church in Frankfurt. Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping servants of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in ministry. We do that by engaging in conversation with people that we see doing it, that we'd like to learn from. And uh, today we are going to learn from Dr. Robbie Gallaty. Welcome, uh, Robbie. Glad to have you today. Man, it's so good to be with you, Doc. Uh, you are known for a lot of things. You are the pastor of the Long Hollow Baptist Church in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, author of uh, several books. Uh, but uh, in fact, uh, tell us your story, man. You've got one of those fascinating backstories of any megachurch pastor I think I've ever heard. So uh, um, tell us about yourself. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't want to relive it. I'm glad I went through it, but man, I wouldn't want to do it again. Uh, I was actually, uh, short version is, I was raised in a very religious home, New Orleans, Louisiana. I was uh, Roman Catholic growing up. And, uh, you know, my parents were really good Catholics, meaning we went to church every Sunday. We missed Sunday church, went to confession on Saturday. But uh, I never had a personal relationship with the Lord. You know, I never knew I could have access to God. I viewed God kind of like this overbearing dictator who was out to get me when I sinned. Uh, so when I went to college to play basketball, of all places, I go to William Carey College. I didn't even know who William Carey was, much less a missionary. And I go to this college as a Roman Catholic on a Southern Baptist campus, and I am the target, as you can imagine, of every evangelistic class You're on campus. One. You're their one. But yeah, I was the one. Like I was like, and I wasn't small, you know, so I'm six six. They can't miss me. And uh, they thought, man, we're going to convert this guy. And man, they shared the gospel with me and they tried. But here's the thing. Even then as a lost person, I knew deep down inside, I was a project for them to conquer. And I knew I was a name on a list. It wasn't until my second year of college that a man named Jeremy Brown, uh, who I think he was the only guy really brave enough to pull me aside and really share with me about Christ personally, he befriended me, right? We had the same likes and we had the same passions and habits. And so he shared the gospel with me. I didn't receive the gospel, but the cool thing is God would use the sown seeds in my heart and heart to bring those to fruition seven years later. So just a side note to those listening. I mean, I'm like the last guy who ever would come to Christ, but it was the gospel seed sown in my heart that God used years later. Uh, I got out of college. I was, uh, I was in a network marketing business in college. The thing went belly up and I kind of got disenfranchised with business. So I thought I'm going to do something different. I know what I'll do. I'll train to be in the UFC, right? Doc, you familiar with the UFC MMA fighting? And uh, I'm 6'6 at the time, 290 pounds. Uh, I'm training to fight. I get asked to be a bouncer and a bartender at the time. I'm coming home from work. And uh, this is when my whole life changed. 
1999, November 22nd, I'm driving home, an 18-wheeler comes across two lanes of traffic, rams my car into the guardrail 65 miles an hour. I herniate two discs in my neck, two discs in my back, and I go to the doctor and they bring and they send me home with four things. And like most people who are on drug pain medicine today, it was the result of a legitimate accident, right? Like I was legitimately in pain and uh, the doctor sent me home with four things, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. (laughs) And you know the story, Uh, within within a few months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I I can't work anymore, I can't train anymore, I just wanna get high. And I would run through the 30-day prescription in two weeks, and I had to find a way to fulfill this insatiable desire I had to get high. And so I moved from street dr- or from pharmaceutical drugs to street drugs. And a guy's like, man, why, why are you fooling with going to doctors when you can buy heroin and cocaine? You can buy it in bulk. You can sell it to fuel your habit. And so what I did is I took the network marketing knowledge from the world years before, brought it into the drug world. And in the beginning, I have to be honest, by the world standards, I had a very successful import illegal business, obviously, and um, made a ton of money in the beginning. But as any addiction works and any sin takes you, it always takes you further than you want to go, always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And man, there's a price tag I never wanted to pay there. And it just broke me. Uh, I lost everything I owned, Uh, robbed my own family for $15,000. I ran out of money. Uh, live without gas, electricity, and water for three months. We mastered the art of the cold shower, uh, freezing cold water, no hot air, no hot uh, water, and get into the water out. I did it for almost three months. I don't even know how to do that. I can't even put cold water in my hands now without freaking out. Much less take a shower, you know. But we were more interested in getting high than paying the bills. And uh, by God's grace, long story short, my parents took me back and uh, they welcomed me back in, no strings attached, displayed the grace of God in my life, just unconditional love as unbelievers. And little did they know, and just recently, a book, I finally wrote my entire life story in a book. It's called Recovered. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It just, it just oh, I've got the book. book. I've got the book. Okay, so the book just came out. And basically, the subplot of the book is my parents who had this loving, caring, unconditional relationship with me, who I stole from and robbed, welcomed me back in as an unbeliever, and they were unbelievers, thinking, this is so cool how the Lord works, thinking they were saving me physically. But what God was going to do many years later is God was going to save me and ultimately use me to save them spiritually. In 2010, I had the privilege, and this is how the book ends, of baptizing not only my dad, but my mom and my sister, who I had the privilege of leading to the Lord. So just a cool God story, how God calls me into ministry. Uh, He radically saves me uh, at 26 years old. And then I wander for the next six, eight months. You know, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know how to memorize scripture. I'm at Edgewater Baptist Church one Sunday. The pastor's name is Jim Shaddix, of all places. I find myself at this, quote-unquote, seminary, Southern Baptist Church. And a little-known man at the time, he looked about 12 at the time, I have to be honest, named David Platt. Uh, He's a church member. He doesn't look much older now. He doesn't look much older. He's in his teens now. But back then, he was 12. And so here am I, 6'6", 290, and there's David. And he's like, hey, would you be interested in meeting once a week to study the Bible, memorize Scripture, and pray? And I said, David, I would love to. And uh, he says, uh, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? 
And for the next two years, Doc, we met every week for discipleship. Uh, twice a week on Tuesday and Thursday. We started at the Chinese restaurant and the Italian place over pizza, and then it moved to seminary. David encouraged me to get a, a master's degree. David encouraged me to get a PhD. David baptized me, took me on my first mission trip. So I say all that to say, and it's a long story, but I say all that to say, the reason I'm so passionate about investing my life in other people is because I wouldn't be at the place I am without David and others discipling me. That is, uh, first of all, what a story that glorifies God, that he saves you in order to ultimately save your parents. Uh, he uses them, in essence, to save you, to save them. And uh, your relationship with Platt. Uh, it, also, you mentioned Jim Shaddix in there. I, you know, I think Jim Shaddix is, uh, you know, he's not a secret, but there's a part of me that says he's one of the best kept secrets in the Southern Baptist Convention. He's one of the greatest disciples I've ever met. And there's just a, a long line of guys out there that he personally discipled. And then they, they have discipled others. I think of, of you, I think of Tony Morita, I think of, uh, of course, David Platt and Matt Pierce. And Landon Dowden, Byron yeah. Townsend, my, um, Byron Brown. I mean, you just named the list of them, golly. Shaddix is, first of all, he's one of my favorite people. He's just, there's a humility about him and he just loves the Lord and he is a great discipler. And uh, what a, what a tremendous uh, impact he's had uh, on just generations of Christians. I, 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 I love Jim Shaddix and I think uh, we need to, we need to talk about guys like that. You know, you reproduce what you honor. And I want to honor a guy like Jim Shattuck so that we have more of them, guys that will pour their lives into others. And man, here you are pastoring one of the largest churches in uh, the SBC and in the country. And it's because guys like David Platt and Jim Shattuck and people like that took an interest in you. I've got to believe that when Platt first started discipling you, that you were sort of a, a, a problem. You know, <laughs> we, 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 you know, yeah. You know, when you first start discipling guys and they know nothing and they're coming out of a completely different world, uh, they're, they're trying to get oriented. And I, I got to believe that there were a lot of interesting phone calls in those days. Like, what do I do about this? How do I understand that? Oh, man. David, David and I laugh because I, I'm convinced David took me on as a project. Like, he, they're like at church. Who's going to take the guy who's like, the lost cause is no way. Cause you're going to understand when I got saved, like I went from total drug induced world club leading drug dealing to radically Paul like salvation, just a transformation salvation. And so I'm going to church within two weeks. I'm at a Southern Baptist church two weeks later. And here's the thing. I don't know the protocol of how to talk and what to wear and how to act. So I'm driving. And here's a crazy thing. When I was in the drug row, this is funny. The car I bought was a $50,000 Cadillac CTS, black on black, 20 inch chrome katana rims, $9,000 bass thumping stereo in the trunk that I'm cruising up to Edgewater Baptist in. Now I'm not blaring Eminem and Dr. Dre anymore. I'm blaring DJ Madge and KJ52 and cross movement. And, and you got to believe, and I'm wearing clothes from the club. Yeah. Like I don't, like my dress clothes were black shirts and black slacks. And so I, 
I, I laugh at David. I'm like, you had to look at me as a project. But here's the thing. Thank God that he took the time to invest in me. You know, when I went to seminary, a lot of guys shunned me. I haven't talking, talked about this publicly a lot, but I will tell you this. And, and rightfully so, in a sense. I mean, when I got saved in November, I preached my first sermon at a homeless shelter in January. I was saved literally six weeks when I preached my first sermon. I didn't know how to preach, but I knew God had called me to preach. And so I'll tell you a cool God story. So I'm sitting there for six weeks leading up to this sermon. And I'm like, God, you call me to preach, but I don't have a dad that's a pastor. I don't know a preacher. I don't even have a church. Like, how am I supposed to preach? And I really felt like the Lord impressed upon me. You don't even have a sermon. How are you going to preach without a sermon? I'm like, you know what? That's, that's a novel. I probably need a sermon. So thank God for Christian radio. I listened to three guys, John MacArthur, Charles Stanley, and Michael Youssef on uh, S. It was, uh, d it was the, the radio station at New Orleans Seminary, and I listened to them, worked for my dad's body shop during the day, listened to them, and wrote a sermon. Still remember it. Three, the three crosses, Jesus and the two thieves. I mean, that'll preach, huh? That'll preach. And here's the thing. I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. It just shows you how when the student is ready, God's going to send an opportunity. So here I was. I was faithful with little things. God honors me with this opportunity. I'm at church. I went to a church that Sunday. It was Celebration Church. It was another church in town. Dennis Watson was the pastor. And somebody sees me at the water fountain. True story. He walks over to me and he says, hey, I heard you have a radical testimony of drug addiction and set free. He said, are you a preacher? <laughs> look up from the water fountain doc and I said as as a matter of fact I am a preacher now I never preached but I knew I was called to preach and so he said would you come preach for me downtown New Orleans at the homeless shelter called the Brantley Center he said there'll be 75 men and women there who have to hear a spiritual word before they get physical food would you come preach next week I go home and tell my parents who are unbelievers I'm like you're never gonna believe this I'm going to preach next week my dad looks at me, he's thinking, what are you smoking? You know, like, aren't you off a drug? What do you mean preach? Like, what are you talking about? They come to see me, I think, because they're in disbelief. So here we are, 75 people in this room. My parents are dressed for Sunday church. My dad's got slacks, a button down and floor shines, around 75 homeless people. I get up and preach this sermon, you know, Jesus and the two thieves, I give my testimony. I don't know how to preach. I don't know how to give an invitation. I simply say this. If you're interested in knowing about the same Jesus I know, would you just stand up so I can pray over you? And Doc, I'm telling you, one of those few times in preaching, and you've been here, where the evidence of the Holy Spirit is palpable, mm -hmm. and you, can, you have this unction upon you in preaching, and I just sense the presence. I mean, the presence of God was, 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 was magnificent. I mean, you could sense it in that place. Seven guys stood up that day with tears in their eyes, and they said, this is the Jesus we want to know. And God used that one time to confirm, this is what you're going to do the rest of your life. Hallelujah, man. And so you, you end up at, at uh, New Orleans Seminary. Yeah. I don't know how they let me in. I asked Dr. Kelly when I graduated my PhD, I said, uh, let me ask you a question, doc. How did you let a one year remove $180, $200 a day heroin and cocaine addict into the seminary? He said, well, you didn't actually tell us that on the entrance exam. I said, well, you didn't ask. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank God for letting me in. But Yeah. Uh, well, hallelujah. So how did, how did, was seminary? Did you enjoy 
seminary? Hey, listen, I tell people, I know there are mixed opinions about seminary and school, but I am, I mean, if you want a poster boy for what a blank slate going in looks like, I mean, I had nothing. I mean, I didn't know much. I remember my first Old Testament exam. I hadn't read the Old Testament before. And I missed Ham, Shem, and Japheth. I didn't even know who those guys were on the first Old Testament. That's how, when the teacher would say, open to Obadiah, I'd look around and say, Oba who? And the guy reached up and he'd say, man, you, you need to learn where the glossary is, you know, in the front. So I knew nothing. And I say that to say, I was a blank slate. I went in knowing nothing. And the New Orleans Seminary produced a preacher in a sense. I mean, and I, I love my time. I, I know a lot of guys, you know, they don't, you, you, seminaries, you get what, out what you put in. And I looked at seminary. Here's what I made a deal with the Lord. I said, God, I'm going to work as hard as I can behind the scenes. And I'm going to show you my commitment to you. Would you honor me publicly? And I, and, and I didn't mean honor me, but would you, would you use me publicly as I work privately? And obviously that's a biblical principle. It is. Uh, Adrian used to say that. And he'd say, if you will deepen your ministry, God will broaden your ministry, things like that. And I really, I really believe it. it's a real principle. So your first pastorate was where? First pastorate, I was a four and a half year old Christian. Uh, it was a church in Morgan City, Louisiana, 65 people. Uh, they were literally going to close the doors. This is, this is uh, a, a small church, uh, fishermen, shrimpers on the bayou, right outside of Lafayette, Homa, Thibodeau. And uh, they literally were going to close the door. And I guess they thought, what can we lose? Let's try this guy. But what happened was, it was the combination of my testimony of drugs and alcohol in a small, you know, backroads town with my former Catholicism conversion. And Doc, I'm telling you, that first church experience, it was revival every week. Literally, I'll tell you, I mean, this is only God. The first year, we saw more people come to faith in Christ than were in the church. So the first year when I got there, we baptized 72 people. When I got there, we only had 65 attending. So you think about just how you flip the church with just new believers in excitement. I had people saying, I feel like I'm in the book of Acts. Now, I didn't know what I was doing and still, still, still learning what I'm doing. But back then it was simply trusting the Lord. I told him two things. I'm going to come in and do two things. I'm going to preach expository exegetical messages. We'll just walk through the Bible and I'm going to disciple a handful of men and ask them to do the same. And that really was the secret. Well, man, those are two really key things. Now tell me who convinced you of, uh, of expository preaching. So I had two mentors. Okay. Uh, obviously David Platt. Uh, so David was the one who convinced me. Jim Shaddix was the one who displayed it before me. I'll tell you a cool story about expository preaching. So when I met my wife, Candy, she was in Baton Rouge. She was uh, serving the Lord and speaking and going to prisons and serving in her local church. And she had a great pastor, but he was a, no offense, good old boy, kind of a topical, open the Bible kind of rant preacher. Okay. And, and I'm not against this guy, but, and, and the way I likened it to her was he's doing the best with the toolkit he has. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's what I told her. And that's the way I liken it. He's, I mean, I'm not faulting this guy. He's doing the best with the toolkit he has. So I would go hear her preacher. And then every other week she would drive to New Orleans to hear Jim Shaddix. And you know how expository preaching is. It's an acquired taste at first, right? I mean, it is an acquired taste. But like I tell people, once your palate gets tuned for filet mignon, 
Yeah, that's right. You can't go back to Ryan's Steakhouse. No offense. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it's nice to visit for time, but you can't do that anymore because you're in a good way ruined. And so I knew this was going on in her life, okay? And so one day when we went back and forth, she, she said, uh, leaving the sermon, she said, what do you think about my preacher? I said, he was okay. She said, don't you talk about my preacher like that. I was like, I'm not talking about your preacher like that. I said, let me introduce you to mine. Well, at first, she didn't know what to think of Jim Shaddix, but I'll tell you this. When we got married, by the time we finished dating, she had been so accustomed to that kind of preaching. It's almost like, and you know this, anything less than exegetical, biblical, expository preaching, you almost think it's not faithful preaching. I don't know how you can faithfully preach. Yeah, and uh, I think our <laughs> our wives become some of the greatest defenders of that method of preaching uh you know man tanya uh, we go to a conference or something and some guy gets up and does some little comedy routine you know with uh you know a, a verse that he really never even gets around to talking about she's she's just beside herself she is hard on him I'm like, i can't believe you <laughs> they're more critical than we are right now you know <laughs> absolutely because she she wants to hear the word, you know, and uh, Buck Run is that way too. They really know the difference between uh, there are good pulpiteers that are not necessarily expository, right? There's yeah. good pulpiteers, but you you're you're really not going to grow a church deep on that kind of preaching. Yeah. Uh, right. So, how many churches have you pastored now? So Long Hollow is the third church I've had the privilege of pastoring. After, uh, after Morgan City, Emmanuel Baptist, church went from 65, by God's grace, two and a half years, grew to almost 300. It was just a God thing. Uh, it was the largest church in the region, in a small town, you know. Uh, and we thought we'd stay there forever, but God had other plans. And so we moved to Chattanooga, 2008. I was still working on my degree, so it was a deal where I had to fly every week to school. This was back when the PhD was still every week you had to go. And it, so literally, I don't know how I did it. Yeah. Two and a half years, I flew every Thursday to school and home on Friday. It was crazy. Um, but anyway, I did that. Went to Brainerd. Brainerd was a very different church. It was a high church, choir, orchestra, very Bible-centric church. A church that had grown years before, but kind of plateaued. And again, it was just something different. I was young and, and you know, expository preacher, although the guy before me was. But I just had this passion for discipleship. By God's grace, the church grew not only physically, but spiritually. And then stayed there seven years. And then prayed about, and, and what's crazy about Brainerd was my entire family moved to Chattanooga. And within one year, we left. My mom and dad moved next door. My aunt and uncle moved around the corner. And my sister moved down the street. And right after they moved, we left. <laughs> so that's why I had to explain to them how the call of God works in your life. And But anyway, we came, we came to Long Hollow and... I don't, we don't have enough hours in the day to talk about the transition, but I will say following a man who grew a church before I got here exponentially, and it's really only a God thing. One thing about Long Hollow, our church is in the middle of farmland. And when people come and see Long Hollow, they're like, this is Long Hollow. It's really God just resting upon the church. The church grew, this is before I got here, from 280 people to 7,000 in 18 years. It's a God thing. And I've tried to discern it and figure it out. And there's no, there's no other way. And David Landreth, the pastor before me, would tell you, it is the Lord. Now, here's the thing about a pastor. 
When you're a secession pastor and you follow a pastor who broke every record and is in every book and every magazine, right? It's very difficult to, to follow that. And not only that, he dies in the ministry at the height of the growth. Yeah. 51 by God's grace. And obviously it was tragic, but God took our pastor before me home. So he dies. And so the first year, Doc, it was very, very difficult because anything I said or did knowingly or unknowingly was a change from the past. And, you know, people look at change as saying the past is bad. So the first year I had within the first week of being there, I had two anonymous email accounts started against me day one. Now, if they, were, if they had names and ways to respond, I could have talked to them, but these were anonymous. And for six months, these guys blessed me every week with constructive, one guy even said, I have the gift of constructive criticism. I know you're new. I'm not. I've been here a long time. You're young. I'm going to help you pastor this church. Every week I preached, I got an email from him. Your sermons are too long. Your hair's too high. Your beard's too thick. Your, your, your teaching is too into, I mean, you name it. It'll bless your, that'll bless your heart. I'm telling you, but here's what the Lord did. God used that first year of our church. And here's what he showed me. And for those listening, and you're in this season now, because sometimes this season lasts, mine lasted almost two years. The Lord showed me this suffering does not define you. The suffering you're going through is refining you and it's making you a better pastor preacher. And it's giving you Robbie a greater appreciation today for the season you're in from the one you came from. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, you, uh, you followed a guy that was revered, uh, by the way, you know, David preached one of his last sermons at Buck Run. Uh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. He preached for me in August. Uh, and I think he, I think he only preached one more Sunday at Long Hollow after that before he died. Uh, God, yeah, because he died in November, brand aneurysm September. And I've this basically in the sermon at Buck Run, he talked about the fact that he was dying. He he joked about it. He, I mean, uh, and his sermon was life's not fair, uh, and just trusting the Lord with it, it. It's phenomenal. I still listen to it every now and then. So I have learned it's a whole lot easier to follow a guy that was not successful in the pastorate than the guy that was just Mr. Everything. Uh, I followed a revered, uh, sainted pastor at Buck Run. And the, for the first three years, I can't tell you how many times people would say to me, they would be, they tried me nice. They'd say, you know, you're probably the best preacher we've had, but when it comes to pastoring, you're no Bob Jackson. And they would just say, you're no Bob Jackson. I said, and I went, yeah, I'm just going to plead guilty to that. You know, you, you can't even argue with that. And I would say, I aspire to be as great a pastor as Bob Jackson. And I imagine you heard a lot of that because he's so, he was so beloved and then he dies so tragically. Uh, but man, you are your own guy and you're nothing like David Landreth. Um, um, I mean, it, <laughs> it's the polar opposite. It, no, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, both obviously both of you are great men of God, but personality, that kind of leadership style, very, very different. And so has it smoothed out now? I mean, yeah, I'm gonna tell you, let me tell you the turning point of the ministry for me, because like you, what they would say is they would come up and give me backhanded compliments. They would say, man, we, we've never heard anybody take apart a passage and preach like now, 
I'm not saying we didn't like David, sir, because David was a great preacher. So I never got a open-handed, you know, genuine compliment without some kind of caveat with it. So um, basically what happened is this went on for about two years. And the thing about pastoring and, and ministry is there's so much pressure on us. And it, most pastors, we want to please people if we're honest and we want people to like us and our identities wrapped up and, you know, the presentation we have and the sermons we preach. And I didn't really know a lot of this until basically one day it hit me that I need to, and you understand in a previous life, you don't admit weakness. Pastors, you know, pastor has a coat of armor and he, he doesn't have a kink in the arm. I mean, he, he, he's perfect. You know, he doesn't admit his weakness. But I felt like I was preaching a sermon on Paul's thorn in the flesh and how Paul says, in my weakness, I will boast in my difficulties and my persecution, and my hardships, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Okay. And here's what the Lord, and I wasn't planning on doing this. And this is a great insight for young preachers to consider, even older preachers. That morning or the, the day before I decided I was going to share my personal struggles the first year with the church publicly, because again, people did not, and the pastors, you can't get up and share this, you know, all the time, but the Lord had really released me to do this. And so the night before I texted my leadership team and I said, do you guys think I could share this without, I don't want it to be self-serving and I don't want it to be about me, but, and they said, pastor, if God's leading you, you do it. And so here's what I did. I got up that Sunday. And again, they don't know me. And here's the thing about your people. It's not that your people don't like you. It's that they don't know you. And when people don't know you, the difference between what they know and who you are, if you're looking at it on a line, they fill with mistrust. Mm -hmm. They fill in the gaps with who they think you are, not who you are. And the challenge is the larger the church, the longer the time it takes for everybody or most people to get a consensus to know you. So at Long Hollow, it took a lot of people. Okay, so I get up and uh, my, one of my staff members said, the only encouragement I'll give you is pull up a stool and sit and talk like a family fireside kind of living room chat. And that's what I did. And here's what I did. I said, I want you guys to know the first year of my ministry here at Long Hollow and boom. I started to tear up. Now, you know me, I'm not a crier. I'm not, I'm not a guy who cries every Sunday. I don't cry very rarely. I rarely cry in a sermon, but man, God broke me. And the sad thing is doc, he broke me in front of all the people and people watching and just, and you know, as a pastor, you're like, man, this is, this is ridiculous. Get yourself together. And I finished this sermon. You ready for this? And I finished this sermon and I said, listen, the shoes I had to fill coming into Long Hollow were unfillable. Right. And I want you, to, and here's what I said. I want you guys to know from this point on, I can't be David. I'm just going to be Robbie. And I hope Robbie is enough. And I'm telling you, you go back, people talk about that sermon. It was 2016, I think it was. And they say that was the day everything started to change because we fit. And here's the thing. I tell people, I didn't do that for them. I did that for me because I needed to get it off my chest. And I told him I'm trying to impress and I'm trying to live up and I'm trying to succeed. And I, and I have all these pressures of, of, of church growth. And, and I said, I'm letting all that grow, go and I'm just going to be me. And I hope that's enough. And I'm telling you, it was so life-giving for me. And it's been amazing since then. It's been the greatest journey. The last two years have been amazing here. Did uh, your anonymous emailers ever reveal themselves? One of them did. 
Really? I went and met with him. This is a cool story. I went and met with him and he had a notebook in hand and he was an older guy in the church. And the funny thing is he was a relative of a guy in our church that we support for his nonprofit, which is funny. And he basically said to me, let, let me just tell you, the first 20 minutes of a 30 minute conversation, he tried to justify why he went anonymous. And he said, the only reason I did that is because you would have never meet, met with me like this. You would have never met with, I know you, you're too big. I said, brother, if you would have just emailed me, I would have met with you like I've met with anybody who wanted to meet with me before that. He left the church, obviously. We had a backdoor revival, blessed subtraction, and uh, he's at another church now, but that's a good thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I gave up believing that I am everybody's pastor, you know, and especially sometimes when Hello. they've already had something else, you know. Hello. Okay, you know, uh, you I'd rather win folks to Jesus anyway. <laughs> That's sort of the goal. Hey, tell me about your, your discipleship pathway. Uh, I, mean, I mean, man, at Buckron, we've used a lot of your stuff uh, and our uh, D groups and our youth, and I, we've learned a lot from you. Tell, tell about that. Yeah. Uh, I actually, if you don't mind, I, I have a new book coming out in a few weeks, uh, actually a week uh, on this whole process. In fact, after teaching for a decade, and doing conferences and here and there, we basically put it together. It's called Replicate. It's named after the ministry. Uh, and basically, it's just like a complete guide. It comes out uh, next week or two. But basically, it's a complete guide of how to walk a, a person, a leader, a church member through a discipleship pathway to create a disciple-making culture. So the pathway is just an idea that I got from the New Testament. I mean, I'd love to say I created it, but Jesus did it, obviously. And I just kind of casually, you know, it's a novel idea. I just casually read through the New Testament, took notes, and here's when I realized, and this was the game changer for me. You and I believe that the words of Jesus are inspired. We, we, we agree with that. That's the way we preach. We, we believe God's word is infallible and errant. The words are inspired. But here's what I also believe, and I think you would agree. The encounters are inspired. The fact that Jesus goes to a well on that day through Samaria and a woman just by happenstance is there is not by accident, right? I mean, God providentially prepared this encounter. And so if that's the case, here's what the Lord, here's the light bulb. God said, God spoke to me through reading. It's not just that the message is inspired, but the method is inspired. And I tell pastors, if you want to experience the blessings of the ministry of Jesus, which we do, you cannot divorce yourself from the method he used. And the method he used was making disciples. And so if you look at Jesus's ministry, did he preach to the large crowds? Yeah, I mean, he did. He preached Sermon on the Mount, feeding 5,000, 4,000. But outside of that, you'll be hard pressed to find him doing a lot of open air evangelistic preaching because he realized that people grow in smaller groups. So what I tell people, and I take, talk about this a lot, Jesus restricted nine-tenths of his time to 12 guys, and out of that 12, three guys. And as a new pastor, I started to ask myself the question, what kind of percentage do I devote to smaller groups and investing in people? And at the time, it was little to none. And so I made a big shift in my ministry. So the pathway is basically taking Jesus's model for ministry overlaying that in a local church and basically following the model. And we have literally hundreds, thousands of churches implementing this discipleship pathway. People call it different things, but it's moving people from worship. One got to start with worship. Preaching is the centerpiece of making disciples. That's what I tell people. You have to have preaching. 
but it's not the only piece. That's right. You know, and you know this. I mean, a lot of pastors, I had one great pastor say, uh, you bring them to church, I'll disciple them. Well, that's part of it, but it's more than that, right? So, so one or two hours a week, man, they need more than that, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's worship that leads to life group, uh, small group. So worship to life group, Jesus had 12. And then from life group to D group, which Jesus had three in himself, group of four, we do three to five. These are intentional groups. They meet once a week for accountability, reproduction, intimacy, scripture memorization, living life, sharing your faith, all those things. And then out of the D group, the funnel widens again where they reach the world. So what I tell people is the way we lead to evangelism is on the first step of discipleship. Our greatest evangelistic strategy is discipleship because the Lord showed me years ago, if you grow people deep, like you said, I'll grow the breadth of your ministry. The problem is we've been taught a lot. We got we have to grow the breadth of our ministry and let people worry about the depth of themselves. And what I'm advocating for is if you grow your people deep, and I'm not just talking about Bible knowledge and Bible trivia and pop quizzes and filling the blank. I'm talking about living out your faith, engaging the Bible, living it. When we grow people deep, your people begin to change the world. That's right. I agree. Hey, uh, have you been preaching online during the COVID-19 time? Yeah, I'll tell you a couple of things I'm learning from online preaching. Yeah, you, have you been doing it? Yeah, yeah, to an empty sanctuary. Stand up in the pulpit, do the whole thing. Eight eight people in the sanctuary. Is it not a weird, it's a weird feeling, huh? You know, it, it, I'm going to say the Lord has been unusually gracious to me. It's not been weird to me. And yeah. I'm a guy that really gets energy from full rooms, you know, and I go places preach. If there's a small church, but it's packed, you know, 50 people, but that's oh, full. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm on, you know. Uh, and if it's, if it, if it seats 900 and there's 600 there, sometimes I'm like, ah, this doesn't feel so good. So for me to be able to do it has been surprising to me, but the Lord's given me a grace that I can visualize our people there. I've, I, I feel them watching online. And uh, most of the comment that I've getting, I've gotten from most people is, man, you can't tell you're preaching to an empty sanctuary. So I did write the book on preaching a bold assurance. So let's be honest here. We're not all Dr. Herschel York, you know, so we can't preach like, I, I, I will say though, uh, you, you know, this too, you have to ramp your energy level up higher than you think is the capacity, right? right. Because yeah. the room you feed yeah. off room. Right. That's exactly right. There's nothing coming back at you like there normally is. And we have, uh, a lot of African-American members who talk back to me and, you know, and, and they've loosened up our other members. And so it's become a lot more dialogical at Buck Run than it used to be. And then suddenly that's gone. So you're right. You do have to, you have to be conscious of it. You know, you, man, I've got to bring energy to the, to the room. Let me ask you a question. I, I, I mean, obviously you're interviewing me, but let me ask you a question. Cause one of the things I did the first two or three weeks, I started to preach longer which is interesting. My normal sermon length time is 37 to about 38, 39. Okay. That's normally when I'll go. Although the staff will say I hit 40 to 45 at time. But when I got into the, uh, the Corona right at the beginning of the virus, I started to preach 44, 45 the week before Easter, I preached 52 minutes. And then they started sending me articles saying a lot of guys are preaching less because 
it's online, it's bite-sized information. And so now I'm pull my sermon back to about 30, 35 now. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I've, I've preached longer. Uh, it's been, uh, for one thing, we have less other stuff. Like we're not singing as many songs. And so our service is still lasting the same length. But I'm like, uh, hey, people are watching and I've got them. And it's like they have nothing else to do. So I'm going to dig in a little deeper. We're putting up a lot more content. So we started doing this thing on Sunday afternoon. I do a Q&A about the sermon. And one of the other pastors interviews me about the process and what, what would you, what did you get in your study that you didn't bring into the sermon and stuff like that. And it's been really fun to me to get to talk shop after the sermon and people can online live ask questions or they can text questions in and why didn't you mention this? Or what about this? You, you referred to this now explain that more. It's just been great. So our folks have responded extremely well. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. There, this is part of the benefit though, being somewhere 16 years, you know, it's, we're like an old married couple, you know, we, we know each other, we love each other. We're going to overlook each other's faults. Right. And uh, you know, we, we, we can talk in shorthand. So I love it, man. I, I love it. Well, how, uh, tell me quickly about your wife, Candy, you guys have been married. How long? Candy and I have been married almost 16 years. And you have how many children? We have two little boys. Uh, they're 11 and nine, uh, named Rig and Ryder. And somebody said, you realize you named both your kids after trucking, a trucking company. And I, I know that, but, uh, and they are tough. Uh, I mean, they like to wrestle and I don't know where they get it from, but they like to wrestle and they're rough. Uh, but yeah, we, we've been together. Candy is an author. She's a passionate disciple maker. Uh, she wrote a book called Disciple Her, which is really like a practical guide for women. There's not a lot of women's discipleship process books out there, a lot of Bible studies and information, but she's passionate about, uh, you know, discipling, teaching women. And so really blessed to have her as a partner. Well, man, I'm so grateful uh, to you for agreeing to be on Pastor Well today. I like to end with a few, what I call twinkling of an eye round questions and just random things that uh, sort of let me know a little bit more about you and you take as, you don't have to answer them quickly, but I just, let me, let me uh, rattle them off. All right. Uh, your favorite secular author. Leadership books would be the area I read secular authors in I'm trying to think of some good leadership books. Uh, book we're going through with our staff is a book called disrupt you. Great book in this season about how uh, the, the, the book's talking about how you purposely disrupt an industry in order to pivot it. We don't need disruption now. We have it. Yeah, we've so got it. Going, oh, yeah. We're going through that. Uh, yeah. Well, Ari, what uh, Christian authors do you like best? Who do you read? You know who I'm reading? I'll tell you what I've been on lately, and it's actually, I think, uh, the beginning of a book I'm about to work on. Uh, I, I told the Lord I took a break from book writing. I was writing one book or two books a year since 2009, which is really crazy to think about. The Lord really released me from that a year ago. I haven't done anything creatively writing-wise in a year. But this week, after losing my friend Darren Patrick uh, yeah. two weeks ago, really affected me because this is the second friend I have lost in less than a year, and both of these men, here's an interesting insight, have sat at my di di dining room table within the year. So both these men have been in my house eating dinner at my table and both have died. 
and the Lord really just has impressed upon me. We are, we are achieving goals and burning out along the way. And what good is it to tackle the mountain if you're miserable in the journey getting there? And so anyway, where I've been living now is uh, emotional health, spiritual health. And what the Lord is starting to show me is your spiritual maturity is capped by your emotional health. And what I'm talking about, like feelings and sitting and crying, but I'm talking about, think about this. When God saves a person, here's the line I tell people, when God saves a person, he redeems their or, or he uh, redeems their heart, but he doesn't immediately sanctify their habits. That's right. That's exactly. And right. so we bring some of these habits and these hurts from the past into our Christian life, and if we don't address them and deal with them. So, anyway, the book. Okay, so here's the author I've been reading a lot, and he's become a great friend. His name is Pete Scazzaro. Emotionally healthy spirituality and the emotionally healthy leader. And again, you may not agree with everything he, he writes, but man, it's so good about what he says. Here's a line I'll give you, and this is a good line. The problem with many pastors today is that their role has outpaced their soul. And what he's saying is we are outputting more than we have allowed to onboard from the Lord. We're giving away something we don't have. Yeah. I've been in ministry 40 years, Robbie, and I will tell you that's exactly the what I have witnessed time and time again uh, that uh, you you can't be empty inside and be producing and giving all the time you you've got to be full of the Holy Spirit uh, yourself and otherwise man you you're just going to you're going to give and find yourself empty and I'm so glad you're writing that I look forward look forward to uh, what you might uh, have to say about that. You know, what uh, I tell people is I'll say one thing before we move on real quick. What I tell people is don't fall in love with the ministry of Jesus and out of love with the Jesus of your ministry at the same time. Yeah. And, that's and a good word. it's easy to do. You know, uh, I, I, the triggers another thought. There's just an awful lot of narcissism in the ministry and it's deadly. Uh, when we start, when it's about posturing and, and appearing a certain way and what people think and instead of just really a love relationship with Christ and living from the overflow, when we minister from the overflow of that relationship with Jesus, yeah. it, uh, that, that doesn't tire you out. You know, I want to feel like Jesus in John four, you were talking about the woman at the well, when they, the disciples come back from town and they've got food and Jesus says, I, I, I've got meat to eat. You don't know about man. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I'm writing that down. That's good. That's good. That's I want to live off of what God is doing in my life. Come that, on. That secret food that others don't always see. Uh, you mentioned a car. Do you have a dream car? A car that, man, I can have any car. This is what I'd want. Man, uh, years ago, I almost bought this car when I was in the network marketing business. I thought I was going to be a millionaire by 25. I was 22 at the time. And, you know, this downline multi-level marketing, you have all these dreams. I test drove a F-355 Ferrari Spider. Wow. That was the car I wanted. Uh, never got it, obviously. Won't get it, but uh, yeah. I like the Ferrari. Man, uh, that, that is a sweet car. I passed a Spider the other day on the highway and took a picture of it. Oh, I know. They're so good. Yeah, they're beautiful cars. Yeah. Do you have a favorite vacation spot? Yeah. You know, 
my wife and I, we love to go to, I hate to give this out because it's such a little secret spot. Uh, we go to the Fort Walton, Navarre beach area. Uh, we used to go to Destin, but the problem was I would leave Nashville and go to Destin and see all my church. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's like no getaway. It's like, hey, there's our pastor, uh, which is fine. But uh, so we like to go there. And then um, we, we like to go to the mountain some. Uh, Gatlinburg's close. You know, Dollywood, our kids like to go there. So. Yeah. Uh, um, if uh, Do you have a favorite beetle? Beetle? Yeah, the Beatles. I'm going before your time. I'm not a Beatles guy. I'm a I'm a 1980s 90 rock guitar kind of guy. I still like uh, <laughs> Van Halen and Guns N' Roses. I hate to admit all that. I mean, that's what I used to listen to. Oh no. What is your favorite Beatle? McCartney. Uh, you know, my favorite Beatle is uh, McCartney. Uh, although you know, they each have their own charm, but yeah, McCartney. But <laughs> hey, you mentioned Eminem. He and I went to the same high school. Stop. Yeah. Are you serious? Lincoln High School, Warren, Michigan. Absolutely. Claim to fame. Yeah. Herschel I, York, Eminem. Who knew? We did not. We, we had some of the same teachers. That's no joke. Oh, come on. I was, uh, I, I, so he lived, in, he lived in my neighborhood. I lived at Eight Mile and Van Dyke. Come uh, on. Yeah, and he, he was like 10 years younger than me. I mean, I didn't know him, but I know where he lived, and it's my, it was my neighborhood. Unbelievable. Yeah. I used so to love that guy. I've seen him in concert. Oh, really? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> in a previous life we won't talk about but <laughs> that's right we were, but, uh, oh. anyway, we're, he and i from the same same place i although i grew up in kentucky went to michigan in my teens uh but that's where i ended up well yeah. man uh you you are a dear friend and a model of ministry i'm just so grateful for this time thanks for being with me on pastor well today thanks for having me very very, very much and i want to say thanks to all of you who tuned in if you have not yet subscribed, please do so on YouTube, your favorite podcast app. And hopefully we'll see you again next time on Pastor Well.